if you would open up your Bible uh, to the book of Jude, just one before the last book of the Bible. So if you get to Revelation, you went too far. And any guesses on what chapter we're going to be in today? <laughs> it's a trick question. Don't say chapter two. There's only one chapter. Uh, and I, I kind of titled this message, Jude, a big time study in a little book. And uh, I really, the Lord put it on my heart several weeks back to just kind of begin studying through this book. Uh, I didn't intend it to be for today's Bible study, but I've been going through this and then listening to other pastors teach this. And I've been, there's a, a friend that I have in Houston, um, Anthony, that we've been going through together, just sort of discussing back and forth these things. And I had no idea when I started this, and I've read Jude, I've heard Jude taught, but there is so much material in here. We could literally break this thing down into like four to five Bible studies if we wanted to, and you think, well, it's only 25 verses. How would that be? Well, just trust me when I say that. So if you don't have a pen today, most of you probably have some sort of cell phone that you can take notes on. I'm going to encourage you to write down the scripture references because there's a lot of them. Uh, this book packs a powerful punch. Our goal today is to get through the whole thing, but uh, know that for much of these 25 verses, we're going to be just scratching the surface. You can take this and you can dive deep into a Bible study. Uh, there's much personal and corporate application for enriching our walk with the Lord here. And we're going to come to a number of passages today that relate back to the Old Testament. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth about this. I'm going to give a quick sort of overview of what he's talking about. Uh, but I'm going to share the scripture references, and I'm giving you a homework assignment to go home and to read those passages in light of what we were looking at here, what Jude is trying to communicate. Uh, I really think you'll be blessed if you take the time to do that. So our outline for Jude breaks down like this. There's an introduction and greeting, verses 1 and 2. Uh, his reason for writing or his purpose statement, verses 3 and 4. Uh, examples of bad character which lead to judgment, verses 5 through 16. Exhortations, verses 17 through 23. And then he gives a doxology, verse 24 through 25. We're going to be a little bit unorthodox. We're actually going to read through the whole book, all 25 verses, and then we're going to go back and break it down. That way, like I said, there's a lot here. If we run out of time, we'll have read the whole book, and then you can go home and finish studying it yourself. Uh, but that's not my goal. My goal is to actually get through it. But So let's begin reading. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, 
having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner having to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the root, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. That's a lot of good stuff right there. And so, Jude. Who is this guy? Jude, right? His, yeah, brother of James. There you go. Reading will tell us that. Uh, but... His name is actually Judas, but after that other guy, Judas, betrayed Jesus, I'm sure he didn't want to be labeled with that, so let's just shorten it to Jude, right? Uh, but Matthew 13.55, if you mark that scripture down, Matthew 13.55 tells us that Jude is actually a half-brother of Jesus, so, and, and brother of James, as is written here. I find it interesting that this guy, we're told in the scriptures, up until 
the resurrection, Jesus' family, his brothers and his sisters, and yes, he had them in case you come from a Catholic background, that's a whole other thing, but Jesus had brothers and sisters. They did not believe in him until the resurrection. After that, there's a switch. And now he refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. He doesn't try to pull rank and be like, yeah, I'm Jesus' brother. He's like, no, this, I'm the brother of James. But I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And if you're not familiar with what a bondservant is, the word used in Greek is doulos. It means to be owned as a possession, purchased for a price. In the law of the bondsman in Exodus 21, 1 through 6, basically states that it was to be a willing slave. You were purchased by somebody to be a slave for them. And because your master treated you so well, perhaps he gave you a wife, and you loved your master, that you would decide when you're free, you had a chance to be free, you didn't want to be free, that I want to make myself a willing slave of this person. Biblical ear piercing became a thing at that point, and they would take an awl and put your ear against the post, and they would punch a hole in your ear, and that was the symbolic that you were a willing slave, you were a bondservant. And so, in, as a New Testament believer, both are true. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. He purchased me for a price his life for mine. But he's such a great master that I want to say, I'm willingly giving my life to you. Right? Both are true for us. So he's, he, this is who he's writing. So he, remember, he's saying this about his brothers. Jesus, I'm, his, I'm not relating to him as my brother now, but as my Lord, my master. And the brother of James. And he's writing to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So, who are the called? Who's yeah, yeah, we're called for sure. But just us? Just Willow Springs Calvary Chapel? I mean, everybody's called. Yeah. In, in Luke 14, Jesus gives a parable about a great supper. And he invited, he had invited guests who blew it off. They didn't want to come in. And the master who was throwing the, the supper said, well, forget about them. Go out and invi- invite anybody that will come in. So they go out and they invite everyone they can find. They go and they invite them in. And it says that there was still plenty of room for more people. So the master sends them back out and says, well, go out into the highways and the hedges or the highways and byways. Go out, look in every alley. Turn everything over. Anybody that wants to come, bring them in. And those that were invited and came were welcomed. Everybody's called. But the Bible also tells us that many are called, but few are chosen. And I think a great example of that is Noah's Ark. We're told that for about 100 years, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was building an ark. He was telling people the world is going to be judged by a flood. The rains are going to come. People watch the animals two by two, go into the ark. You know how many people made it onto the ark? Eight. You guys are good students. 
Very good. Yeah, eight people made it onto the ark. Everyone was invited. Eight people came. That's not to say that heaven will be an empty place. But there's, there's a lot of people who don't think they're invited. So if you're wondering today, am I called? Yes, you're called. Well, how do I find out if I'm one of the chosen? You choose. And then you'll know that you're one of the chosen. And so they're called and then sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart. Different from the sanctification process. That's a lifelong process where we're being made into the image of Jesus. But we are set apart. John 17 tells us that, that Jesus says, Father, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. So we're sanctified, we're, we're set apart by God and preserved or kept in Jesus Christ. And, you know, it's kind of a lame analogy. I've heard it over and over, but it just it makes so much sense. But how are we preserved in Jesus, right? It starts and end with, ends with Jesus. Colossians chapter 3 tells us that if we're, uh, if we're a believer in Jesus and we've died with Christ, then we're hidden in Christ. We're preserved in him. So how do I be hidden in Christ? What does that mean? You guys ever had a candy bar? <laughs> now I know that's a lie. You're in church. Stop lying. <clears throat> a candy bar. Any type of candy. Any food. Right. Most of us, if you're like me, you like junk food, right? Well, when I pick up that candy bar and I eat that candy bar, that candy bar is now hidden in me. It becomes a part of me. Parts that I don't want to be part of me. But it becomes part of me because it's hidden in me. Likewise, we are hidden in Christ. We are part with him. Colossians goes on to tell us that when Jesus appears at the second coming, then the real you is going to come with him, the sanctified you. Right now, currently, if you're a believer in Jesus, the Bible says that you have been, past tense, justified, but you are, present tense, being sanctified. The sanctifying process is the hard part, but it doesn't change your position as being justified in Christ. Okay, hope that makes sense. So then he goes on to say, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. One translation says, may you ever experience more and more of mercy, peace, and love. I like that. Right? So what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You deserve hell, but God's not going to give you what you deserve if you place your faith in Jesus. What is peace. Well, the Bible speaks of, this is not like the peace of the 60s that John Lennon was singing about, right? This is peace of God, right? When you're saved, you have the peace of God. And then, I'm sorry, you have peace with God when you're saved, but then you also can have the peace of God. So Romans 5.1 is a great verse for having peace with God. And then uh, in Philippians chapter 4, it talks about the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. You get both. And he says, 
and love be multiplied to you. Then he, he verses 3 and 4, now we get uh, the reason that he's writing this letter. So he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so Jude goes on to say here that hey, I wanted to write you this letter. When I set out to put my pen to paper, I was going to write you this letter just talking about all the nice stuff, how we have been justified, how we're being sanctified, how we've been set apart, how we have all these things in common. Where he says common salvation, it doesn't mean like, oh, it's just like common. It's like we have it in common, our common salvation. And he says, I was going to write about that. That's what I wanted to. But I found it necessary. The Holy Spirit put upon his heart to write this letter, extor exhort not extorting them, exhorting them. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a call to strengthen. It's a call to encourage this exhortation. Calling them to contend earnestly for the faith and contend the word it it ha it carries with it uh like much of the new testament writings like a sports type idea if you've ever think of like two heavyweight champions going at and i'm not talking like mike tyson knocking out michael spinks in 21 seconds i'm talking like a fight where they're just blow for blow and it's back and forth or if you've ever seen like high school or college-level, Olympic-level wrestling, where two people just go at it, and they wrestle, and they fight, and it's, it's just a great match. I had the, the chance when I was working in a high school in Texas to uh, work at the, um, the Texas UIL State Wrestling Championships. It's a long day, but you have the best of the best from all over the state at different weight classes, wrestling with each other and some of those matches were really intense sometimes it looked like they were down and out and they were ready to get pinned and then they made a move and all of a sudden they're back on top and they win the match it's it's if you're not a wrestling fan it's hard to get into but once you start to learn a little bit about it man it's an intense sport and that's the idea he's he's saying to contend intensely earnestly for the faith there's an article there, the, the one and only, not one of many, not several to choose from, but contend earnestly for the faith. What is the faith? Yeah, it's, it's the faith. It's God's word that's been from the, the beginning of time and we'll go on for eternity. It's the faith. There's no add-ons. There's no additions. There's no taking away. It is the faith. It doesn't change because society changes. It doesn't change because of what the news says. It doesn't change because it's politically correct or not. God's word should offend you. And when you get offended by God's word, you should ask, why am I being offended? Because God is not wrong. You are wrong. So he's saying to contend for the faith, fight for it, which was once 
for all delivered to the saints. One time, once for all. There's no revisions. Now we've had translations and things have been updated in English language to make it easier to understand or whatever language people may speak. But it's the same faith. The, the, the plethora of um, archaeological discoveries of, of Bible manuscripts, if you put them side by side with what you have right here, they haven't changed. They're the same thing. When they found in the, uh, I don't know what do they call that thing, the, the Dead thank you, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the the copy of Isaiah that was in there, is identical. It's word for it hasn't changed. God's word. There's more manuscript evidence for God's word than there is for any other ancient writing. And it won't change. And no matter how many times they try to get rid of it, it's not going to go away. God says it's there to stay. He exalted his word above his own name. And so for all eternity, we have the word of God. So the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, notice it's once and, it's not like once and for all, but I I think it's once, should be comma, for all. Delivered to the saints. But why is he writing this? For certain men have crept in unnoticed. I'm going to call these guys the creepers. Okay? These creepers have come in. Well, where did they come in to? The church. So the stuff he's going to talk about is stuff that is in the church. Then, now, and all over the globe. Scary to think about. But again, I want to remind you This starts with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. And everything that is kind of scary and freaky in the middle, God is not worried about it. So these men have crept in unnoticed. That's scary in and of itself. Who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. What are they? They're ungodly. What do they do? They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. The King James Version says lasciviousness. And deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So these ungodly men have crept into the church. And what are they doing? They're, they're, they're twisting and they're changing things. And they have, a, they have an agenda. And it says that they are turning the grace of God into lewdness. And by that, they deny the only Lord God. There's a lot of people out there who look the part. They got fancy hair, not like me. They're in shape, not like me. They wear skinny jeans, and they got the perfect look, and they have they sound great. They're good orators, but they twist the word of God. And because of that, they're denying the only Lord God. Right? There's a, a guy in Houston that's got a big, huge church. And he looks good, and he could sell you a car, and he's got a nice smile, but he twists the word of God, and he doesn't give you the full story. And hundreds of thousands of people are being led astray. Right? I just learned about something the other day called progressive Christianity. Right? And Actually, I didn't know what the term meant. Like, what does that mean, progressive Christianity? So I Googled it. 
And th there's actually a website, progressivechristianity.com or .org or whatever it is. I don't even care. But it sounds nice. The guys that are on there, they got the skinny jeans. They got the look. They're like, <laughs> I don't know about him. But they have, they have the look. Right? They have what we would think. They're, they're attractive to, to people to like, well, they look right. They sound right. It sounds good. But if you read their like tenets of what progressive Christianity is, it's just another twist on an old lie. It's saying that all roads lead to God, that we accept everybody no matter what you do. And as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ, we want to accept everybody into the church. I'm sure no matter who showed up and what condition or what they were involved in, we should welcome them into the church so that they can sit and they can hear the word of God be taught so the Holy Spirit can go to work on their lives and they can get saved. But once they're saved, there has to be a change. And if there's not a change, then there's not a change. As my pastor in Houston used to say, if there hasn't been a change, then there hasn't been a change. And if there hasn't been a change, then there hasn't been a change. If there's no change, there's a problem. You can't hang out with Jesus and not be affected. You can't read the word of God and not be affected. It will offend you. And the response again is, why is this offending me? I need to seek what God has to say. And then respond appropriately. But what, what this is talking about is people who are in the church who are twisting the word of God, who are accepted and being accepted, and we're saying, oh, it's okay for you to hang out in the church and believe whatever you want. No, it's not. We teach God's word. We believe God's word. We stick to God's word. And if me or anybody else ever tells you anything different, you need to hightail it out of here. So what is Grace. We talked about mercy is not getting what you deserve. What is grace? Yeah, undeserved favor, unmerited favor, right? And we're told in Titus, and if you flip over to Titus chapter 2 with me, it tells us something about grace. It tells us that grace should be teaching us something. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men Teaching us, you should be marking that, teaching us that denying ungodly and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace should be teaching you something. What was happening? It should be teaching you to live godly, to deny ungodly and worldly lusts. What these guys were doing is using grace as a doormat. Everybody have a doormat of some sort at home, maybe? If you don't, that's okay. You'll get the analogy, right? You have a doormat in front of your house. And what do you do on the doormat? You come in and you go, let me wipe my feet on the doormat and then walk in my house. These guys, these creepers, were using the grace of God as a doormat. They're using it for a license for licentiousness. 
to do whatever they wanted. I'm going to go out and live like hell in the world, and then I'm going to come home, and I'm going to wipe my feet at the door on God's grace, and I'm going to go in, and I'm going to say all these nice things, and then I'm going to go back out and live like hell again, and I'm going to come back in and wipe my feet again. If you're using God's grace as a doormat, it's time to repent. There's a lot of people who have a misunderstanding of what grace is. Grace is not a license to do what you want. Grace is a license to be more godly. And unfortunately, it's so easy to think that Jesus loves everybody and he forgives. And while that's true, we want to make that into something it's not. We want to twist it like these guys would. We want to say that means I can go out and I can sleep with whoever I want. Or I can smoke and ingest and do whatever I want. And I can go lie and cheat and rob and steal. But I can always come back because God is love. And we're also holy and just. And we don't, we don't want to leave those parts out. And this is different. I'm not, if you're struggling in a sin, there is grace for you 100%. Struggling and willfully using grace as a doormat are two different things. Verse 5. So he says to them, I want to remind you, the ministry of reminding is a good thing, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, and now he's going to give us three examples of people who abuse God's grace. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So right next to that section, you can write Deuteronomy chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 14. This is where you can go back and do the reading for your homework. This is part of that. Deuteronomy chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 14. Just a quick synopsis. The children of Israel were delivered by God out of Egypt, miraculously. They went through the Red Sea. They watched the Egyptian army get drowned in the Red Sea. You would think that after being set free like that, that they would never doubt God again. But they did. Remember, God provided them a pillar of cloud to guide them by day and a pillar of fire to guide them by night. And he led them through the wilderness, what should have been an 11-day journey turned into 40 years of wandering due to their unbelief. If you remember, they had come all the way up to the, the border of the Promised Land. They were at Kadesh Barnea on the border. And Moses, at the prompting of the people, sends 12 spies into the land of Canaan. Right, And these 12 spies go into the land of Canaan and they came back with a report. And at first, they came and they said, they talked of the beauty of the land. It truly is a land flowing with milk and honey. There's huge clusters of grapes that we have to carry on poles between us. But there's also these huge giants. They make us look like grasshoppers, and there's no way we can survive in there. And you remember there was the two guys, Joshua and Caleb, who said, Forget about those giants. We can take them. God's on our side. But the people listened to the ten and not the two. 
They feared, and because of that, their lack of trust, their unbelief, God judged that first generation by not allowing them to go into the promised land. All of them had to go, except for Joshua and Caleb, the rest of them died off, and their kids, the ones that they said, God wants us to bring our kids in there and get crushed by giants, and God says, the the children that you didn't trust me with, I'm going to bring them in. And then God miraculously stopped the waters of the Jordan again for them to come in finally. But he's saying, you remember them. They didn't, God had showed them so much grace just bringing them out of Egypt. He was bringing them to a promised land and their unbelief led to judgment. Then he gives a second example. The angels who did not keep their abode, I mean, did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment as of the great day. So here you can write a couple scriptures down. Revelation 12, 4. It tells of one third of the angels who fell with Satan. And then in Genesis 6, 1 through 8, And as I give you this interpretation, know that there's a couple of different interpretations. This is not a dogmatic interpretation here, but it seems to fit what what Jude is communicating. But in Genesis chapter 6, if you'll remember with me, it says that the earth's population was multiplying. It was exploding. There was a population explosion. And the sons of God, the Bible often refers to as angels, And so it says the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men. Now, again, like I said, there's several different interpretations, so you can study and see which one you, which camp you fall into. Uh, Good Bible teachers believe both interpretations. Uh, But as a result of that, those relationships, there was a, a giants were produced. And we're told that at that time, man was wicked and the thoughts and intents of his heart were only evil continually. And this led to the judgment by flood. The next, the next chapter is where we get Noah. Uh, and so what happened, these angels, they didn't stay where they belonged. They didn't, they weren't, content with what God had given them. They left their abode and got involved in something. And now they're reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Isn't that scary to think of? That the demonic realm that is so evil right now that is roaming around is not even the worst of the worst. God's got them locked up waiting for judgment. And then he gives a third example. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner, in a similar manner to the angels that he was just talking about, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Right? So Sodom and Gomorrah, again, the scripture references Genesis 18 
verses 16 through 19. And then Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. And when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we often think of what? Yeah, fire and brimstone. I heard sexual immorality. Yeah, both. Uh, what was going on there, they had sexual immorality. Brazen, in-your-face sexual immorality. We're specifically told of the homosexuality. But I'm sure that wasn't the extent of it. In our society today, you have the homosexual agenda that is being pushed. But along with that, you also have people pushing for pedophilia. You have people pushing for incest to be legalized. I mean, it's disgusting, the world that we live in. That, that's the sin that they're so known for. But in Ezekiel, in, in chapter 16, he tells us that they had pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, and they didn't care for the poor or needy. So those things, the pride, the abundance of, of idleness, fullness of bread, not caring for the poor and needy, leads to self-centeredness. And when you try to feed the self and please the self, the self just gets hungrier and hungrier and hungrier, and you want to go out and get involved in more and more and more depravity to fill a void that really only Jesus can fill. And so they're trying everything under the sun there in Sodom to fill a God-sized hole, and again, this led to the judgment of fire and brimstone. And again, remember, Judas, he's giving them these references to remember the, you knew these things, but you need to be reminded of these things. These are the types of behaviors that these creepers have come into the church, and they're trying to say, it's okay to do this, and it's okay to do that. And we can, we can, yeah, we can get involved in this, and we can accept that. But Jude's reminding them, this is why I had to write this letter, because these guys have crept in, and they're, they're feeding this doctrine throughout. So my pastor in Houston, he came from Calvary Chapel, Las Vegas. It was at one time Calvary Chapel Spring Valley when he was there. And he tells a story about uh, there was a cult in that, I don't know which cult it was, but in that area of Las Vegas. And what this cult's plan was, was to infiltrate the churches, to go into the children's ministry, and to teach the kids false doctrine, to, to, to sway them away from biblical Christianity. And they had no idea that this was happening. But what they had there, they had, a, they had a service at that time for servants, where the servants who were serving in the various ministries had to come and sit for a service, and then they would go out. The sec service that they were not sitting, they would go and serve. Well, as a result of one of these creepers there in Vegas, coming and sitting through the service, she got saved. And then she came up, it was Pastor John Michaels at that time, he's now in heaven, but uh, if you ever met Pastor John, he, he was an awesome, awesome guy. And, and so this lady came to Pastor John after getting saved, and she says, I have to talk to you. I've got to talk to you. And she confessed. She said, this, I'm part, I was part of this cult, this organization and our goal was to to 
put people into churches all over the Las Vegas area to sway them away from the biblical teaching. But I got saved today, and I have to confess this. And so he's like, oh, my gosh, you got to be kidding me. And so he, he, notif- he had to notify all these churches that were around in Vegas. The point is, is that people will creep in, but if the church is faithful to teach God's word, it impacts the heart. It's his church. He'll protect it. And this is like scary stuff, and we got to, it's heavy stuff to go through this, but it's Jesus' church. He'll protect his church. Jude's going to get there, and he's going to give us what's our part. What do we do? How do we contend? And we'll get there. But where was I? Verse 8. It says, likewise, so he's going to give some more examples. Likewise, also these dreamers, referring back to those who have crept in, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so these dreamers, and that word dreamers, that means to be beguiled, to be charmed or enchanted with sensual images and be carried away to wrong conduct. And so... What did they do? They defiled the flesh with those dreams. They rejected authority. And they spoke evil of dignitaries or leaders. And and let me ask you a question. It may be a hard question. Sometimes the Holy Spirit likes to do that to us. Are you that type of person? Are you one that's defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, speaking evil of leaders? And I'm not talking about government leaders, although you could probably apply that, but church leaders. You have a problem with church leadership. Have you had a problem with church leadership in the past? Oftentimes people have a problem with church leadership, and instead of dealing with it, they go to the next church, and then they have problems there, and then they go to the next church, and they have problems there. But that's what these guys were doing. They were coming into the church, getting involved in all kinds of things that fed the flesh, they wouldn't listen to the authority of the church leaders and they spoke evil of them. Now he talks about something that only Jude mentions, Michael the archangel contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring a, 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 against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. We don't get any other mention of this incident in scripture. We are told about Moses dying and his body being buried, Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6, tells us that God buried Moses in an undisclosed location, and that's all we hear about it until we get here. Why? I don't know. There's all kinds of speculation, but reality, I don't know. But we're told that this happened, and you think, well, how did Jude know about this? I'm like, Jesus is his brother, hello. (laughs) Can you imagine, like, sitting around the house, like with Jesus as your brother, like you're like like teenagers, and he's like, yeah, you know, in Deuteronomy, we were, we were reading that today in Jewish school, and it, it talked about that. You know, Michael, the archangel, actually had a battle with Satan about that. I don't know if that's what happened, but I mean, come on, it's fun, right? It's fun to speculate. What, what would it have been like to have Jesus as a brother? Like, mom's always comparing you. Like, can't you be more like your brother? 
He never does anything wrong. I mean, so I don't, I don't know. The, the only other way that he would know about this is, is insight from the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the Holy Spirit gives us that type of insight, a word of knowledge that, that we can use in a certain situation. If you've never had that type of experience, uh, I encourage you to go out and share your faith, to go out and preach the gospel, and you'll experience a word of knowledge. And it's, it's incredible when you see it happen because, uh, as an example, on, in a mission trip in uh, El Salvador, we were set up these tents with these tables, and we had like crafts and things for kids to come and do, and then we'd share the gospel with little groups of kids. But in the, while we were also walking around the little city center area, sharing the gospel with people, and we come in contact with people, and we begin to share the gospel using a uh, bracelet that had beads on it for colors, and we had a translator, and you're just sharing. It's like this, the same message over and over and over again, but with a little, you know, tweak every time you come to different people. And there's sometimes you do that, and all of a sudden you just see someone's face drop. They begin to weep, and they ask, like, how do you know that that's happening in my life? It's a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. I don't know them. I never met them. Never seen them since then. But the Lord knew them, and he had a word right for them. And so perhaps that's how Jude knew. knew. But the point is, we don't need to argue and battle and fight we just have to say the word of God is rebuke what you're saying. No, you're wrong because God's word says you're wrong. And you can just leave it at that. They, there's people that want to fight tooth and nail about this and that and, you know, judge not. You know, doesn't the Bible say judge not? And yeah, okay. But God's word says that you're wrong even if it feels right. And so... Verse 10, it says, But these, again, referring back to those who have crept in, they speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. So he said, if they don't understand it, they just talk bad about it. And the things that they know naturally, like a brute beast, they go corrupt themselves. Well, what are, what's the things you know naturally? Your five senses. Right? Taste, feel, smell, sound, touch, sight. Did I, did I said, okay, that's right. I got them. <laughs> but it's the things that you go chase. Is it, is it going to feel good? You can go like a dog and chase after it. Does it taste good? Let me go try it out. How much can I snort? How, come, how much can I ingest? How much can I drink? How much can I do that? How much can, as long as it's, feeling good and leading lead to a little bit of pleasure. I'm going to go chase after it. That's how people end up depraved, and especially when it comes to, like, sexual immorality. Watching a little bit of pornography is not enough. At some point, you got to get more, so you go deeper. I don't know if you've ever, I don't, I'm, if you've ever had the chance, you can look it up on YouTube. Uh, Ted Bundy did a interview with Dr. James Dobson within, like, I think it was days or weeks of him being put to death. And he allegedly, I don't know, praise God if he did, he says he got born again. And 
he shares a testimony about getting involved in pornography as a as a like middle school age kid. And he said, I don't say this to say that everybody's going to become the next Ted Bundy, but for me, it wasn't enough. That on top of drugs and alcohol, it led to this and it led to this and it led to this and it wasn't enough to satisfy me anymore. And he said, for years, I stood at a cliff, at a precipice, thinking, I can't do the things that are in my mind to do. If I do them, what does that mean about me? But I, without getting right with Jesus, at some point, he just stepped over the, the ledge. And then that wasn't enough. It had to be more frequently. And so that's what happens when we chase after the flesh. You can never satisfy it. It's never enough. And how do we be satisfied? Yeah, Jesus. And let me ask another tough question this morning. Is Jesus enough for you? If everything else is stripped away, is Jesus enough? And for a lot of us, that's a hard question to answer. And that's okay. We're all a work in progress. If Jesus isn't enough, be honest with him and say, Jesus, I'm struggling. I don't feel like this is enough. I need more of you. And then be willing to let him do the work in your life. And so, verse 11, he has a woe. This is a woe to them. For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So he gives some more examples here, and he says they have uh, gone in the way of Cain. Well, you can read about Cain in Genesis 4 and Hebrews 11, verse 4. So Cain, you remember, killed his brother Abel after Abel's offering was accepted by God and Cain's offering was rejected. And without reading the entirety of Scripture, we have a hard time understanding why. Why was Cain or why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's rejected? Well, the Hebrews gives us the answer. The, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Right? Hebrews, it tells us that Abel offered his sacrifice in faith while Cain didn't. That's why his was accepted and Cain's wasn't. And so with the, it says, like two verses later there in Hebrews, without faith it's impossible to please God. God couldn't be pleased with a faithless sacrifice. Cain's lack of faith led him to anger, which in turn led him to murder his brother. Isn't it sad that the first murder in the Bible is between brothers? Not even like enemies, like brothers. Lacking faith leads us to veer from God's plan. Anger drives wedges, which leads to hurt and separation. Now, Abel died and went to be with the Lord. Cain was separated. He literally was sent away. So the way of Cain, they go in the way of Cain. And then have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So the air of Balaam, again, some more verses. Numbers chapters 22 through 25. 
And then Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. So if you remember back with me, King Balak of Moab sees and fears the children of Israel. And he makes an attempt to hire Balaam, uh, a prophet or a seer, to curse Israel. And there are several back and forths, but initially Balaam tells Balak that he can only say what God wants him to say. It's an exciting story. I mean, a donkey talks and everything. So, But, but he tells Balak, fine. Eventually, he, God says, fine, go. And he tells Balak, I can only say what God lets me say and nothing else. He's like, so Balak's like, fine. And uh, Balaam ends up blessing Israel on s- several times. And Balak, he's furious. I hired you to curse them, but you just keep blessing them. So what Balaam does is he, he kind of takes a back door. And he says that I can't curse Israel because God won't let me do it, but you can get them to bring a curse on themselves. All you have to do is get your Moabite women to come down into the camp and to put on a dance and show them how you worship your gods. And so he's like, and that, they'll get involved in sexual immorality, and then that will bring a curse on them. And so Balak is like, well, that's the plan. And they go ahead, and he does that, and that's exactly what happens. The women come down, they do the dances, they entice the men, sexual immorality happens, and chapter 25 of Numbers, judgment comes. And then in verse 31, tells you that... Uh, that that was what Balaam did. And so, the error of Balaam was to chase money at any cost. And some people will stand strong for the Lord. I can't curse them. I can't do it because God won't let me do it. Well, how about for fill in the blank number of dollars? Well, in that case, Balaam's God was money. He had a gift. He was a prophet. He heard from the Lord. Yet money was more important to him. And he did the wrong thing. Later on, as Joshua and the children of Israel went into the promised land, they eventually killed Balaam. His money got him nowhere. And so the rebellion of Korah, also in Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 40, You remember, Korah challenged Moses' authority, and he wanted to know why Moses thought that he was so special. What's so special about you, Moses? Why do you get to rule the people, and we have to do our little jobs? He was a priest. He was one of the, one of the Levites. He had a job serving the Lord, but it wasn't good enough. He wanted to have the authority Moses had. And Moses, when he heard this, what did he do? He fell on his face. He's like, oh, God, he knew it was coming. But then Balaam, or not Balaam, Korah says something. Moses gets upset and he says, God, I haven't done that. You, you prove it. And they have a duel, so to speak, and they bring their censers to the tent with incense in them, and God is going to accept one or the other. And God tells Moses and the people that are with him, back up. Because I'm going to open the ground and swallow them. And so, 
they back up, and sure enough, the ground opened. It swallowed uh, Korah and his tent and his family and the people who were with him, and it says the ground covered them back up. They went alive down into the pit, it says. The, re the rebellion of Korah was not to be content with the position that God had given him, but to want to take on the authority that God had put into place against, and to rebel against that God-given leadership. In verse 12, he continues. It's like, man, Jude, enough. You just keep going. Verse 12, he says, These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Paul gives more uh, insight into this in Corinthians, where he's talking about their, their love gatherings or love feasts, and they would bring the meals, and then the rich people would come in and eat, and the poor people wouldn't get anything. And uh, he's saying that you that are rich, eat at home, leave some for the people. This is their only good meal. But they were only interested in serving themselves. But this, this word spots in your love feast, uh, it can also be translated as like a, a reef underwater. You don't see it, but you hit it, it causes shipwreck. And so that as they're sneaking in, they're, they're causing shipwreck to your fellowship. They're clouds without water, carried about by the winds. So a, a cloud without water is just a tease. We don't live in an agrarian culture, but in an agrarian society where they don't have sprinkler systems and, and they bring water down from other places to water their land, they depend on the, the late and early rains. And if they don't get the rains, if there's a drought, it's a huge problem because there's no crop. So clouds without rain are good for nothing in, in an agrarian culture. They're carried about by the winds, and he talks about late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. A tree without fruit is no good. If I plant a fruit tree in my yard and it doesn't bear any fruit, it's just taking up space. I plant it because I wanted whatever fruit was supposed to be on it. Jesus talks about the fig tree. Remember he curses the fig tree in, during his ministry? And it, he, he goes in and he sees what's going on in the temple and he leaves and he comes in across a fig tree. And he goes to the fig tree because it had leaves. He was expecting fruit, but there was no fruit. And he said, you're cursed. You're never going to bear fruit again. And when they came back the next day, the tree was all withered up and died. Well, what, the poor fig tree? What, I mean, what was wrong with the fig tree? It was giving the appearance of fruit, but there wasn't any. And a fig tree, a fig tree actually blooms figs before leaves. So the fact that it had leaves should indicate that there was fruit. And that's why it says he went expecting fruit, but there wasn't any. And that's what's happening with these guys that are creeping into the church. They're giving the appearance of fruit, but there isn't any fruit. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. It's like a shooting star, a wandering star. Shines bright for a minute and then just fizzles out to nothing. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in ungodly ways. Notice how many times it says ungodly. For all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
So real quickly, Enoch is mentioned in Genesis chapter 5, verses 18 through 24, and Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. Now, there's also something called the Book of Enoch that was not accepted into the canon of Scripture. Jude is not necessarily quoting from the Book of Enoch. He is quoting Enoch. Remember, they had oral traditions that would get passed down. He's quoting Enoch, and Enoch gave this prophecy. It wasn't abnormal for biblical writers to use extra-biblical sources. The Apostle Paul did it uh, with the Cretan uh, in Titus and also with the philosophers in Acts chapter 17 who make some quotes that they, their philosophers said. And so Jude is not necessarily saying that Enoch, or if this was from the book of Enoch, that this was like as good as gospel, but he's backing up his point with something that Enoch said. God is going to bring judgment, and that's what we need to remember. We don't have to worry about what's going to happen. God's going to judge. Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4, as the bold judgments are about to be poured out, the, the, um, they say there, the cry from heaven comes out, great and marvelous are your works, just and true are your ways. You alone are holy. Your judgments have been manifested. God's going to deal with it. So then he continues, these, verse 16, are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust. They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Watch out for flattery. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions. And what's the problem? They don't have the spirit. Worship team, if you guys want to come back up, and we'll finish out here. But look at, look at the stuff that is happening within the church. Grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust. Flattery, watch out for flattery. This is why, grumbling, complaining, walking according to your own lust is why people aren't attracted to Jesus. Because they see the truth. You ever heard, oh, Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. Because well, a lot of them, a lot of people claiming to be Christians are walking around grumbling, complaining, and walking in their own lust. Trying to fulfill the flesh. We should look different from the world. We should be attractive. Jesus walked around and sinners were like drawn to him like, like magnets. Or like he was a magnet, just drawing them. They couldn't stay away. He was attractive to them. But he says what to do. You, beloved, remember the word. Just, just study God's word. Know the word. How they told you there would be mockers in the last time. And so here's some verses for that you can look up about mockers in the last time. Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. If you don't catch all these, see me after. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9, and chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 9. Maybe a little more light. My eyes aren't as young as they once were. So, but you, he's 
And he says again, they're lacking the Holy Spirit. These are sensual persons who cause divisions. They don't have the Holy Spirit. What does the fruit of the Spirit look like? It doesn't look like grumbling, complaining, and walking according to the lust of your own flesh. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You guys all have it memorized, don't you? This is what the fruit of the Spirit should look like. Then he gives again, but you, beloved, build yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. On some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So he tells us, you, build yourself up on the faith. Pray in the Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God. That's the key to success. Looking for mercy, looking for the mercies of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about this having compassion, making a distinction. On others, save with fear. Pull them out of the fire. They're going to have smoking robes, but pull them out. Right? Well, not everyone who is having these problems that the creepers have are like a lost cause. There are some people who genuinely don't know. They complain by nature. They don't understand what they're doing. And you can come to them gently and you can say, hey, God's word says this. What you're doing is this. And if you're truly a believer in Jesus, then pray and like let's work towards something. I'll walk through it with you. And you can be gentle. Other people, you got to say, man, if you continue in that, you're like, you're going the way of Korah. You're like Cain. You're, you're going to, you're going down a bad path. You don't, and the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom on who to be gentle with. I've had people in the same exact sin that I've counseled, and one person, super gentle, and they're broken. Another person, they're like, what do you mean? And you're like, dude, you're going to go to hell. Knock it off. And you have to be both. And again, God gives you wisdom. So now the doxology, the praise, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you, you, and me, faultless? No way. I'm not faultless. <laughs> My wife is laughing. <laughs> she knows. But Jesus is going to present me that way. It's because of him before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. So let me just finish with this. I promise I'll let these guys play a song. I know I got the pastor disease right now. We're closing, we're closing, we're closing. But it, it starts and ends with Jesus. He's not stressed about the middle part and neither should we be. This, this letter that he's writing is given as a warning so that we can know that this is something that is happening, will happen. It's not a matter of if, but when. God doesn't want you to be caught off guard and to be caught up in these things which are going to lead you astray. So what are the exhortations? What are we to take away? To contend earnestly for the faith by trusting God's word. Strengthen yourself in it. Build your life on it. Study it. Know it. And to pray. 
to keep the lifeline open, to stay connected. It's like if you have a lamp, but you don't plug it in, the power in the outlet does you no good. Stay plugged in through prayer. Keep yourself in the love and the grace of God. Stay under the fountain like a waterfall. If you seem to be drying off, get back under it. If you've ever been like camping or something where there's a waterfall, Hawaii, whatever, I've been to Yosemite a number of times where there's some waterfalls and you can get in the little pool and get under the waterfall. It's amazing. It takes your breath away. And so does the love and the grace of God. And if you get out from that waterfall and you start to dry off and you remember it felt so amazing, just step back under. It's that easy. Lastly, he says to look for Jesus. Don't look for everything else. Look for Jesus, period. And then the last thing he tells us to contend for the faith is to look outward to share what we know with other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for these exhortations. Such a, a, a tough portion of scripture. Jude has some tough words. Really, you have tough words for us. But God, I pray that this, for some, may serve as a wake-up call that would, would look to you and recognize, oh man, I've been off course, and that they would get right with you this morning. For others, I pray that they're just encouraged to, to keep themselves in the love of God and to stay there, to look for you. And Lord, we just ask this morning that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would draw us to yourself. Lord, we know that we are living in the last days. We don't know what that means or how much time, but things have never been the way that they are right now and these scriptures are so applicable to the time and the day and age that we're living in and may we just continue to look for you as individuals as a church 